This is an ABC podcast. So my partner woke me up at, I think it was about seven in the morning and she'd got a SES warning on her phone and we've had them before, you know, it's like a flood risk warning. So I kind of thought, oh, it's one of those situations again. So I actually went back to sleep, (laughs) (laughs) regrettably. At 6am in the morning, we did start receiving emergency phone calls to say that the fires were coming. But I think at that stage, we were still sceptical. You know, it was impossible that we were going to live through what we were going to live through that night. Living in Australia can feel like riding a constant roller coaster of natural disasters. And thanks to climate change, the ride is getting faster and wilder as the years go by. Floodwaters are predicted to reach more than a metre higher than a record set in 1880. It's been labelled the worst fire season ever recorded, an apocalypse. And it's not just homes, livelihoods, and in the worst cases, lives that are lost to these disasters. They also batter the mental health of survivors. It was maybe two or three weeks later, you know, when the adrenaline completely subsided and I had this really noticeable mental crash. But research also suggests most people are pretty resilient in these circumstances. That doesn't mean they don't struggle, they do, but they eventually bounce back. Natural disasters have existed since the dawn of time. So the ability for people to respond and to maintain a particular level of, you know, high functioning decision-making, to be able to maintain emotional well-being, it's necessary in order to survive. But as climate change makes natural disasters more common, can our resilience keep up? You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, two disasters two years apart, the ongoing mental health impact on the survivors, and what the research can tell us about the different ways people respond to these life-changing events. So I went back to sleep for another hour and then woke up and went outside and nothing seemed out of the ordinary. You know, the streets flood there. It's in a semi-tropical environment. So we went outside and the the streets had a lot of water in them. Cars were still driving around. Kids were playing in the puddles and, you know, it all seemed kind of merry at that point still. This is Jonathan Ma, or John Ma. He's a musician living in South Golden Beach, about 25 minutes north of Byron Bay in northern New South Wales. That morning, on Monday, February 28th, things were about to go from playful to panicked. It wasn't long after that that the power cut out. And when the power cut out, that area doesn't traditionally have very good phone reception. So you're pretty much relying on internet to kind of stay connected. So once the power went out, then that's when things kind of stepped up a level. Jono says information became hard to come by after that. With no internet, he had no way of knowing what was going on elsewhere in the region. Everything was just word of mouth. And so it was kind of difficult to know who to trust for information at that point. When one of his friends, a council engineer, received news that nearby Lismore was experiencing unprecedented levels of flooding and found that the local river levee had only 100 millilitres left to go, things stepped up another level. And that was the point where I think everyone kind of 
went into survival mode or denial mode. Wow. Everyone basically hurried home mm. and prepared for the worst. So what did you do next and what happened next? So basically went back into the house and applied all our finest Tetris and Jenga skills <laughs> and basically, yeah, basically stacked everything in a hierarchy of value. You know, things on kitchen benches and, you know, I have lots of records, lots of instruments. And that took like a couple of hours. And then once our stuff was stacked, we went and checked on our neighbors and we helped them. And then it started to get dark, you know, that it was clear that the water was not stopping. Hmm. And so by that point, it was starting to lap at our door. And it, it seemed to happen so quickly. You know, I don't know if I have like an abstract recollection of time, hmm. but from that point, to then when we were essentially between knee and waist deep in water in our living room felt like a blink of an eye. Wow. And it was then when the light started to disappear that we kind of made the decision, okay, we we can't stay here. Mm. By this point, I'd sort of accepted that the house was going to go under. So I'm thinking, okay, I need to grab things that are of value enough that I can use to rebuild the house. <laughs> And then basically was kneeling on a surfboard and, and had to paddle out our front door. Wow. Um, <laughs> and, and literally, yeah, paddle down the river that was once our street. Basically went straight to a friend of mine that lives a block away who has like a really high second story. So we're like, we need to seek refuge here. And they're like, totally come in. That could have been the end of their escape. But Jono and his girlfriend decided to make a second trip back home to check the water levels. They were still going up and there wasn't much else they could do, so they left for a second time. On the way back to his friend's house, Jono heard a call of distress. We paddled into the house from where we thought we'd heard the noise and, and sure enough, inside this kind of living room in this like one-storey house, there was a couple in there. I'd say they were in their late 70s, early 80s. Oh. And they were like, the guy was sitting on the couch or almost neck deep in water. And his wife was at the screen door calling out to us because she'd mm. seen us paddle past. And it was really clear that they were sort of in shock and, and didn't really know what they were supposed to do so i told them to wait i'd come back paddle around got a paddle board which is a bit bigger and more stable than a surfboard got her onto the paddle board and then we paddled them to a nearby neighbor that they knew who also had a second story unloaded her and repeated the process for him their place went completely under so uh, you know had we not heard them i don't know i mean they were very old so yeah i don't like to think about how that might have panned out had we not have heard their call for distress Back at his friend's house, all Jono and his girlfriend could do was wait out the storm and try to sleep. They had been running on adrenaline all day, operating on survival mode. They had just lived through the heaviest flooding in the Byron region on record. I sat up basically all night just listening to the rain, just picturing the water level at the house. And I assumed at that point that everything had gone. So there have been a number of studies that have been done in following the trajectory of people in terms of their psychological well-being during all kinds of disasters and crises. 
This is Jerry Karantzis, an associate professor in the School of Psychology at Deakin University. Whether they be health disasters, such as, for example, the COVID-19 pandemic, there's a lot of research being done on that right now. Whether it be 9-11 attacks, mm. um, whether it be you know hurricanes and earthquakes and tornadoes and alike. So we actually have many many different examples of health disasters, natural disasters that we can draw on where people have been studied. Jerry says this body of research shows people typically respond in one of four ways when faced with a disaster. So the first group is people who have a resilient response. This is Jerry's colleague, health psychology professor Antonina Makaka-Wallace. She says the research shows that the majority of people, about two-thirds, will have a resilient response. Having said that, it's not like they are completely immune to the stresses of the event. They do feel sad, they do worry, they feel fear. But within two months, they return to their usual level of psychological well-being. The second group have a high level of distress both at the time of the event and beyond. They don't really ever get over what happened to them. And this is the group that shows very little recovery over time. So this is a group of a particular interest to, I guess, us psychologists in terms of supporting them. Professor Makaka Wallace says only a small percentage of people will have this sort of response, though it's hard to say the exact figure. Then there's the third group, people who have a kind of delayed response. So it's as if they were completely immune and some people might think, oh, they're super strong. And for months they may feel fine, they can just act, you know, and rebuild. But interestingly, in this group, the distress can start happening months or even, you know, more than a year after the event. It's as if something hit them, this sort of delayed realization, what well, this was horrible. The fourth and final group have a high level of distress at the time of the disaster and after, but unlike the second group, who don't recover at all, this group gradually returns to normal over a period of months or even years. So this is a group of people who show gradual declines in distress until their psychological well-being is re-established. Do we know why most people are more likely to be resilient in the face of disasters? Like, why is that sort of the most likely response? You know, natural disasters have existed since the dawn of time. So the ability for, for people to be able to respond and to maintain a particular level of, you know, high functioning decision making, emotional well-being, to be able to handle the challenges and the dynamic shifts and changes mm. of any kind of natural disaster, it's necessary in order to survive and for your family to survive mm. and for subsequent generations to survive. So there's a lot of evolutionary pressure around us being resilient as a species. And in terms of what influences how likely a person is to fall into one of those four categories, do we know what factors are at play? I don't think we can necessarily predict who will fall into a specific category, but we can tell you who is more at risk of suffering or who is more likely to be resilient. So first of all, is the minimal exposure to the disaster. So if you experience the flooding, but say it didn't touch sort of your belongings or touch your family, you, you know, you see the community, of course, you are not unaffected. But if it didn't touch you personally at the deep level, mm. you are slightly protected in comparison to a person who was like the first house who mm. experienced a fire or a disaster. So this is the proximity. But there's also male sex being protective. So males cope better. Uh -huh. People who are older, 
And people with higher income and education are more likely to cope better. This is not a universal thing, you know, so there are people who wouldn't have high education and would be sure. very capable and would be able to cope and be very, very resilient. So these are just risk factors, mm-hmm. but also being free from secondary stresses. So if at the moment of a disaster, your life was relatively good and stable and predictable, you will have more resilience. And also another important factor, which is whether you had good prior mental health. So, for example, if you are a mother of a young child and suffered postnatal depression, let's say, you know, two years ago, you've recovered. But this is something that is a potential risk for having more of an ongoing distress. Professor McCocka-Wallace says these findings are again based on decades of research on disasters and mental health from about the 1980s onwards. Some of that work has been correlational research, some perspective, where survivors were assessed at multiple time points after a disaster. Time and again, she says, these same trends have emerged. For example, education and income are associated with greater resilience, and Professor McCocka-Wallace explains that's partly because these people often have the means to regain control over their situation, so they face fewer stressors. They're also less likely, on the whole, to live at the epicenter of a natural disaster, as disaster-prone regions are often also poorer regions. Of course, all of this is based on population trends. There can be plenty of variety individually in terms of how people cope. For Lorena Granados and her partner, Gasper, life was pretty good before the bushfires of 2019-2020. They lived with their 12-year-old son, Dante, in the town of Mogo and ran a successful leather goods business. And we've been established in Mogo for about 20 years. Mogo is a small town, a very small town, of around 300 people near Batemans Bay on the New South Wales south coast. On New Year's Eve 2019, Lorena awoke to smoky skies and raining ash. I saw embers pretty much flying and just falling everywhere. Like Jono, she and her partner assumed they'd be relatively okay, though. They'd been hosing down the house from the day before, and they thought they were prepared. I left the fire hose on! But as the heat picked up, they realised they needed to leave. Photo albums were the first thing that I packed and then I just started getting all my suitcases and just shoving anything and everything that I thought was valuable to me at the time. That's when the chaos and everything started kicking in like really fast. The fire would eventually destroy Lorena's entire home that day and much of the rest of the town. But that wasn't even the most traumatic part. Lorena ended up separated from her 12-year-old son Dante for almost the entire day. In the morning, before things had gotten really bad, she had dropped him off at her daughter's house, just north of Mogo, on the other side of Batemans Bay. She and her husband had left him there, knowing he'd be safe, while they made a second trip back home to collect more things. But Dante, her son, was entirely on his own, as her daughter was out of town. And that's when we got stuck. So we got stuck on this side and Dante was on the other side and then we had no reception which was, well, you can imagine, like, everything's on fire. And here I am thinking, I've just dumped my son on the other side by himself. Like, what the hell have I done? By this point, all of the roads out of town were on fire and police wouldn't let her through. I think that's when panic mode hit because I wasn't with him. 
So I was beside myself. It got to a point where I illegally had to pretty much say, you know what, I don't care what you guys are saying. I'm risking my life, but I'm going to get to Dante. And did you? Yeah, of course I did. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I spoke to a policeman and I said, look, you don't understand. My son's on the other side. He said, I saw you coming through the fire. So if you've come through that road, that means I can go. He goes, look, I'm not meant to say this. I did get through. But if you do, you have to take it easy. As mm. soon as he said that to me, I'm like, see you later. I'm <laughs> out of here. There was no way that I was going to put my head on any pillow or even put my head down to rest knowing that I wasn't with Dante. Lorena filmed her journey through the fire to get to Dante. By this point, it was nearly 10pm on New Year's Eve. You had fire on both sides. You had trees falling in front of you and power lines falling. So, yes, it was extremely dangerous. And, yes, we took it really slow. But at that point, the wind had calmed down. Mm. So the fire was just settled. Can you tell me what it was like to finally be reunited with your son? What was that moment like? I... I don't know if it was a numbing feeling or an ecstatic feeling. It was just, it felt like home. (laughs) It Mm. felt like (sighs) that feeling of relief, you know, release. Like all day you've been under a pressure cooker and all of a sudden they've just released your tension and it it was great. It was great, but it was at the same time devastating because at this time we knew the loss. Luckily, it turned out that a family friend had met up with Dante, so he hadn't been alone after all. But Lorena and her partner still had multiple losses to contend with. Not only did their home burn down that day, but their business too. It's it's just learning to live with that trauma. Like, I still look for things that I feel like I still have. So I don't think we're ever going to get over it. Like, when you lose a lifetime where it's your lifestyle that you lose Mm -hmm. at the same time as your personal belongings. It's been two years since those terrible black summer bushfires, and Lorena hasn't had any formal therapy to help her cope. But she says what's kept her going is her tight-knit community and restarting her business. That has been our main therapeutic front for us because people want to know. They Mm -hmm. come in directly going, how are you guys going? You know, how's the recovery? So by having the business, we have that opportunity to be able to talk about our situation every single day. So in terms of the four main responses people have to disasters, I asked Lorena where she thought she fits. I I think we've been resilient and I guess I, I need to tell you where this resilience comes from. I was originally born in a third world country. I came from war. So I've already lived a traumatic event in my life. So, you know, I, I think that have equipped us to have the resilience that we have. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, natural disasters and mental health, told through the experiences of two survivors of two different disasters two years apart, the 2019 bushfires and the recent floods in Byron Shire. 
And let's return now to musician John O'Ma's story. While the town of Lismore was submerged under 14.4 meters of water during those first floods in February this year, Jono's home in nearby South Golden Beach flooded up to the level of the kitchen benches. So everything he'd stacked up high survived, including his prized records. Yeah, I mean, that was the main thing. Just because appliances and things you can rebuy or whatever. Whereas like a lifetime's collection of records is something that you just cannot replace. But his car, his furniture, some of his music equipment did not. Nor did his house, really. It's now unlivable. Yeah, once that much water's gone into the walls and floors and underneath the house, basically like black mold was starting to grow. So we had to like rip off all the walls. I mean, that's that's gotta be pretty devastating to lose your house like that. How did you process that? I mean, to be honest, that processing didn't happen until a good two or three weeks later when the, the adrenaline completely subsided. And I had this really noticeable kind of mental crash where all the energy had gone And then it felt like there was space for the anxiety and the depression to kind of rush in. And then it was like grief, essentially. It was a grief that I hadn't experienced before because it was hard to kind of pinpoint what it was that I was grieving. You know, there was a moment on the night where it got dark Mm. and we were still in the house. And there was a moment just before it's, you know, I both sort of agreed, okay, we have to leave our house. And we kind of embraced like in the kitchen, like waist deep in water. And it felt so surreal. And it was clear that the magic in that space had gone, like all the light had gone, all the, all the warmth and the coziness and the safety and security of that place. And, you know, I remember I used to almost boast to myself, like, this is one of the best things I'd ever done with my money. Like I'm a musician. So it felt good that every brick on that house Mm. had been earned by making music and it felt like I'd finally arrived at this point in my life. So the grief of the loss of that all hit a few weeks after. Jono says he also struggled with feeling like a victim. He wanted to be active to help. So he threw himself into the recovery effort, finding solace and helping others in the immediate aftermath. As more time passed, he began organizing fundraising gigs. The events are selling out within minutes. It's generating like hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, seeing the power of music convert from, you know, a a musical energy to something else, a different kind of energy is like really why I've dedicated my life to music. So for a brief moment, it felt like myself again. Like Mm. I was no longer someone that was in crisis. Instead, I was someone that was doing what I love Mm. and helping the community in the process of doing that. Then the unthinkable happened. The region flooded again. It was like a reoccurring nightmare. And so, yeah, having this happen a second time, so soon after the first time, how is your mental health now? It's been only a week or so since the floods now when we're talking. Um, By the time this airs, it'll be a bit more. But how is your mental health at the moment? Um, I think there's some pretty alarming symptoms that I've noticed. Mm -hmm. Lack of sleep is the main one. And then I was having night terrors, which I've never had in my life. Like I'm waking up in panic attacks or anything like that. I was starting to have these recurring nightmares of like, like rising water, like rising damp, this sort of rising darkness. And then having to, you know, having to have like a cold shower to wake myself up and then breathe through it. So that's new. And then 
other symptoms just like just feeling demotivated, particularly after the second one, just really distinct fatigue. I know it's still very early days for you, but do you have any sense of where you fit into those sort of four main disaster responses? Do any of those resonate with you? I don't know if I'm qualified to self-analyze myself sure. in that way. I feel like I've just gone through another, you know, it's, I spoke about that turning point with creating a sense of normality. Mm-hmm. So that felt like a turning point. And then obviously cop that second blow, another set of grief followed that. But then just recently I was able to kind of find a permanent place in federal, which is like up high mm-hmm. in the hinterland, which sounded like really good to me (laughs) after being in really low-lying close by river areas so that's been a huge turning point so I feel like because I've been really privileged to have a few of those things fall into place really quickly I'd like to think that I'll bounce back pretty quickly We've talked about how two-thirds of people will be resilient, and that's sort of been the case evolutionarily. It's grounded in that. But we've also talked about how these events are becoming more frequent, more intense. Do you feel like perhaps that two-thirds might start to shift as people get more fatigued by how intense and how frequent these events are becoming? It's an interesting question. Um, I believe in evolution, so I think we will adapt in some way. Uh, But obviously we know that the rates of, for example, chronic illness and following that comorbidities such as anxiety and depression are becoming more and more prevalent in the community. So some portion of this, you know, two thirds of people who deal well would have more of these conditions, would have more of a vulnerability to to different problems. And I think, you know, in a sense, you're right. Yes, there will be vulnerabilities that grow, but I also believe that we will be able to come up with strategies to overcome in some way. That might be my naive <laughs> way of thinking, but but also, you know, this is what's happened with evolution mm. over the thousands of years. So I think we'll adapt to some degree or, you know, being completely idealistic, our governments will do a better job helping us with managing things like, you know, climate change. It's really hard to be able to provide an answer on that question, because if we say that a lot of this hinges uh, on some evolutionary drivers, well, part of evolution is that there is an adaptation process. You know, while the adaptation is occurring, yes, you can see some kind of fluctuations, but, you know, people just find other ways to adapt and survive. But what I will say is that quite a bit of the research that's been done in various communities and natural disasters are also in communities that are more subjected to natural disasters, right? Mm. If we think about, for example, New Orleans and subtropical, tropical climates or those particular parts of the world that are more subjected to earthquakes, you don't necessarily see this kind of wearing down of people's resilience. You don't exactly see changes in those figures in any significant way. And there is a counter to that where some people say, well, you know, people choose to continue to live in these areas. It's their home. It's their sense of place. They're connected to a broader community. They still want to live there. And it's like they are prepared for the next round. They don't come in as naive. So do those learnings, despite the struggles and the challenges, prepare them if they are in such a disaster situation again. Despite their many losses, homes, businesses, possessions and more, both Jono and Lorena count themselves lucky in many ways. You know, 
honestly, it still feels like it's only been three months since we burned down. So when you talk to me about two years, it still feels surreal. Like it, the wound is still really fresh. I think part of what was really distressing about those first few weeks was I didn't feel comfortable as a victim, you know. Yeah, I didn't want to relish in any trauma or anything. I just wanted to get on with things. I don't know where we would be if we didn't have a shop front and everyone has the opportunity to come and see us. Just by having that five-minute conversation with someone who's better off or worse off than you, it, it's alleviating. I think now just having some sense of stability and, you know, already I'm starting to sleep better in this place because it feels safe, it's up high. We've been very, very lucky that we've stayed healthy throughout the whole event and we haven't lost the plot yet. I'm in the process of rebuilding a studio here so I can divert some of this trauma into into creativity. You know, even though it sounds like cliche, but like I feel like this is another turning point and I'm going to be okay. That's all in the mind for this week. A big thanks to musician John O'Mar and business owner Lorena Granados for sharing their stories of survival. Our producer is James Bullen. Sound engineer this week was Isabella Tropiano. And special thanks also to Chloe Bryce and Joel Werner for their help with this episode. I'm Sana Kadar. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.